Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. Today we'll be bringing you another episode in our Top Consult series. Hey everybody, yeah, super excited to have another case today. We have a common topic in pulmonary medicine and I'm pumped because it also overlaps with a common topic in critical care. Uh, so I'm really excited to get to it. I can't wait for and super thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Sandy Zay. So Sandy is an instructor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine and a pulmonary and critical care physician at Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, welcome to Poem Peep, Sandy. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, we're going to dive into our case. But just as a disclaimer and as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. And the case that we're presenting is HIPAA compliant, and some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. Oh, man, we have a new consult. Okay, a 23-year-old man with a past mental history of poorly controlled asthma is in the emergency department with respiratory distress. He came in 15 minutes ago, who was brought in by his partner, who found him with severe shortness of breath at home. He's afebrile, he's tachycardic to the 120s, he's breathing 28 times a minute and normotensive, and he's currently saturating 91% on room air. Monty, this sounds pretty scary. What other information do you want right now? Yeah, it definitely does, Ferf. One of the first things I do when seeing someone presenting with an asthma exacerbation is to assess the clinical severity. Right, so always starting with your ABCs and vitals, including oxygen saturation, is going to be important. You know, a lot of exacerbations can be managed in the outpatient setting, but there are some clinical signs we can look for that may indicate a more severe exacerbation. And in this case, there has to be an obvious reason why our patient presented for a clinical evaluation. You already mentioned a couple of pertinent signs, FERF, um, specifically the tachycardia as well as the tachypnea are suggesting a high adrenergic drive to me and likely distress. And I would complement those findings with a physical exam. So first, just look at the patient. Are they using any accessory muscles? You know, do they have to sit upright or are they tripoding? Is a patient diaphoretic? And a quick test, um, but an important test, is evaluating the ability for the patient to speak in full sentences. You know, if a 23-year-old man is having difficulty speaking or can only speak one to two words at a time, that's going to be very alarming to me. And obviously doing a lung exam. So with obstruction, you would expect to hear expiratory wheezing. And if you don't hear wheezing or or lack of airflow, that's also concerning, and I would be worried that a patient may need oxygenation as well as ventilatory support um, if that continues to progress. Awesome. Those are amazing things. And I think there's one other thing I want to take a, a little segue to talk about in asthma. I don't think we would ever really do this clinically, but it does come up and it is a true physiologic phenomenon, and that's pulses paradoxes in people who have sort of a severe asthma exacerbation. So pulses, like we know, we often think about tamponade. A normal person, they take a breath in, their systolic blood pressure drops about less than 10 millimeters of mercury. And this is just because they get uh, take a big breath, there's pooling of blood in the pulmonary vasculature, a little bit of decreased uh, LV preload, and the systolic drops a little bit. In pulses paradoxes, that effect is really exaggerated. So they take a deep breath in, and their systolic blood pressure drops by more than 10 millimeters of mercury. And in tamponade, this is because the, they don't have the ability to fill the heart. It's restricted from the outside, and the RV bows into the LV decreasing output. In asthma, it's a little bit similar. And if someone's got a really severe exacerbation, you're going to see this phenomenon. And I don't think that we measure it often, but you might see it on an A-line if you end up having one. So in asthma, there's air trapping. The patient's breathing at a higher FRC because they can't exhale fully. 
This creates increased pulmonary vascular resistance and a high RV afterload. In addition, the patient's usually in distress. They're taking big negative intrathoracic pressures. These act as an increase in LV afterload, just like the opposite of the way that a positive pressure ventilation helps decrease LV afterload. And it also increases RV return. And all of that leads to bowing of the RV into the LV, similar to like you got in tamponade, but a different mechanism causing it. And that, that bowing into it leads to a decrease in LV cardiac output and a drop in the systolic blood pressure. So if you see that in asthma or if you see it on a board question, it can be a sign of a severe case. That was great, Firth. And I always love getting the physiology pearls from you. And Sandy, I want to ask, though, you know, I know sometimes it could be tough to get a thorough history in a patient presenting with distress, and especially, you know, presenting to the ED or trying to triage them. But what are some history items that are important to consider um, in someone presenting with an acute asthma exacerbation? Absolutely. So like you said, history can be tough when a patient's in distress, but it can be taken from them or with collateral from the record of the family. And so some important things to know about when you're speaking to a patient that you're worried um, has um, is, is an acute distress with asthma is first, their asthma history, so their baseline severity and medications, as well as any prior intubations they've had. Second, adherence to their medication regimen. Third, any triggers they have for their asthma and any new exposures or conditions, so something like an infection. And then fourth, what is their baseline peak flow if they know it? And so the peak flow depends on um, someone's age, sex, and height. And so, for example, for um, a young man, normals in the 450 to 750 liters per minute range. So um, if that peak flow is reduced by 50% or um, if it's less than 200 liters per minute, that indicates a severe exacerbation. I I kind of feel like the main difference in my medicine clinic and my pulmonary clinic is that I started measuring peak flows. So (laughs) that's like the only thing that I majored did different. (laughs) That was great, Sandy. And we're going to be diving into management in just a second, but are there other things you'd want right now, like in labs or imaging? So if you're worried about a severe asthma exacerbation, um, I think one of the more important things to get is an ABG. And so that's particularly true if the patient's peak flow is less than 200, even after they get initial bronchodilator therapy in the ED. Hypoxemia is unusual in asthma alone, but if it's present, it usually indicates either a life-threatening exacerbation or an additional issue that's going on. So a concurrent pneumonia or atelectasis or, or something. Um, The key thing I'm looking for, though, is pH and CO2 to indicate um, how much obstruction the patient has and CO2 retention. So chest x-rays are often done when patients come in, but they're generally unrevealing in asthma and not a top priority. One of the few times that you're going to hear us say that you don't need a chest x-ray right away. (laughs) Uh, This is all great stuff. So this patient is examined. He's using accessory muscles and he's speaking in incomplete sentences. So ongoing signs of a severe exacerbation. He has diffuse wheezing throughout both lungs. His partner reports, because he can't give a great history himself, like you were saying, uh, that he had asthma since he was a kid. He's an active smoker, unfortunately, still, and and probably due to this, he has two to three exacerbations a year. He's on Montelukast, and he's on Advair, which is an inhaled corticosteroid and a long-acting beta agonist, but is only partially adherent to them. And he's been hospitalized before because of these exacerbations, but he's never been intubated. He doesn't measure his baseline peak flow, so he doesn't know a baseline, but currently uh, his peak flow is 220 liters per minute. 
So an ABG is obtained and his pH is 7.49, his PCO2 is 32, and his PAO2 is 62. So Sandy, you asked for it. What do you think? Well, I think the exam findings in history are pretty concerning, and I'm definitely thinking this is a severe exacerbation. Uh, The blood gas is somewhat reassuring, though. He's hyperventilating, which means that he has severe obstruction, but he's um, still able to ventilate. So Christina, given all this, what do you think the first steps we're going to do are now? Thanks, Murph. The most important thing is achieving medical stability and determining whether or not the patient warrants mechanical intubation versus can you provide supportive treatment and supplemental oxygen to maintain a saturation goal of 92% or greater. And when thinking about an acute asthma exacerbation, remember that asthma is driven by reversible obstruction uh, with the bronchodilator response. So using therapies that allow for smooth muscle relaxation, as well as decreasing inflammation to allow the airways to open and dilate um, will allow for optimal expiration is really an important and mainstay of therapy. So one of the medications that we're probably all thinking of and is used is a short-acting beta agonist such as albuterol. And, you know, when someone is in the ED being triaged, they may get initially two to three treatments up front or what may be called stacked NEBS. And there's likely practice variations across um, institutions. And I think would actually be an interesting debate on the role of continuous versus intermittent NEBS. But at a minimum, a patient such as ours would likely require short acting beta agonists at least every two hours. Another medication I think of is a short acting muscarinic agent such as ipatropium. And this can be given in conjunction with albuterol and was referred to as a duoneb. And this can be given up to every four hours in combination. A third medication I know may not be um, as apparent to everyone, but we can't forget about our friend magnesium sulfate. And this inhibits calcium influx and results in smooth muscle relaxation and relieves bronchoconstriction. And this is usually given upon triage by our ED colleagues, but there have been studies to look at this and dosing has been weight-based. Uh, So several studies looked at 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight up to a maximum dose of 2 grams um, just to look at um, outcomes. And there were improved outcomes when this was given um, in acute asthma exacerbations. And remember, though, that when magnesium is given for this scenario, it's usually done quickly over 20 minutes and not the more classic, you know, one to two hour infusion that you may think of when you're um, repleting electrolytes um, with your AM or PM checks. And just I always remember the two scenarios uh, where I always want to have magnesium handy and given quickly are an acute asthma exacerbation as well as torsades. And lastly, we have to talk about systemic glucocorticoids, and I think that this is probably another interesting area for debate um, mixed on studies, but Sandy, I want to go to you. What do you usually give um, as far as dosing goes for systemic glucocorticoids in an asthma exacerbation? I think when patients usually come in, um, and they're often still in the ER at at this point in time, I've usually seen them um, be given methylprednisolone um, 125 milligrams in a severe asthma exacerbation up front. But my understanding is that there really isn't great data um, about what dose to give. So um, so I'm sure it can be variable from um, institution to institution. Yeah, I feel like the variability that you guys are talking about, I see it all the time. Yeah, I, like I think the three NEBS is what I'm used to, but I've heard about the continuous. I, 125, I feel like I always get. And then inevitably, we get to talk in medicine rounds the next day about you know steroid equivalency dosing and reducing the dose to a daily. But I'd be really curious if someone ever does like a randomized trial. So th- this patient gets all those treatments. 
So the he gets nebs, stack nebs. He's getting steroids. He gets magnesium sulfate. Uh, and during this time, you get another consult. You step away and you ask them to do a repeat ABG to in 30 minutes to see how he's doing. So after 30 minutes, you get a page that says patient isn't working as hard, is a little sleepy, but he's got no wheezing now. Repeat ABG comes back and is 7.3843. So what do you think? Eek, bad. It's a normal ABG. How could it be bad? (laughs) So it could be better, but it also could be worse. And um, so even though that may look like a normal ABG, a normal ABG can be scary in patients with asthma. And so uh, this suggests that the dynamic hyperinflation is so severe in this patient that um, the patient's tidal volume and their alveolar volume are dropping. And um, eventually with worsening hypercapnia, you'd be worried that the patient would be getting fatigued. And then the fact that they're not wheezing is also concerning. So they're really moving very little air. Um, So this patient's getting sicker. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, So what are you going to do next? So I'm worried that he might get intubated, but if he is still awake and if he's working, um, you could perform a short trial of um, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So like BiPAP to see if there's benefit. Um, And so there's a couple of reasons why BiPAP might help. Um, BiPAP increases airway pressure. So there's less resistance and less airway collapse and patients may be able to exhale more easily. Application of some extrinsic PEEP may lead to decreased work of breathing um, for this patient. So it might help, but I think the key thing is to really just perform a short trial of it and check back in on your patient. Don't forget about them to see how they're doing. Yeah, we're going to talk more about this principle of extrinsic PEEP later, and I love it. It's like one of my favorite physiology principles, so we should definitely check back in on it in a a couple minutes. Agree, Farf, and definitely want to get some peep talk in, but I think it's worth talking about a few less traditional treatments that some listeners may hear about. And the first is being heliox, which is a mixture of helium and oxygen, which overall results in a lower gas density. And by lowering the gas density, you decrease the pressure needed to achieve a flow rate, and you change more turbulent flow to more laminar flow, which ultimately helps with airflow overall. You know, and I haven't per se used Heliox in an acute asthma exacerbation, but have used it in patients with Strider and logistically can take a bit of time to set up. So bringing a huge canister to the bedside isn't always ideal, but maybe something that's used at uh, various institutions. And second, I've not seen this done practically, but there are some studies that have looked at this in kids with croup, and this is a use of IV beta agonist. Um, overall, the goal is to relax smooth muscle to help with bronchodilation, so I understand why um, it can be overall beneficial, but haven't seen this done in a practical setting. Yeah. I, I've seen Heliox set up once, but it took a while. <laughs> I don't think I would do it in this acute situation. <laughs> So this patient was trialed on BiPAP and his next ABG was even worse. It was 7.2557 and he's hypoxemic with a PaO2 of 58. So the decision is made to intubate him, just like you were predicting, Sandy. And to me, this is like the scariest thing out there. You know, intubated and asthmatic always, uh, you know, makes me pretty terrified. And there are a few reasons why doing this can be so dangerous. And I think we've all kind of seen it when an asthmatic finally gets intubated, if they're failing, they have this way of sort of collapsing right afterwards and doing really poorly and taking a long time for you to put the pieces back together. So I think of a few reasons of why this happens, and and we can try to minimize some of them, and some of them are just the nature of the beast. 
So one, these are often younger patients. They have a ton of adrenergic tone because they're working so hard to breathe. So with that, they have a lot of sympathetic tone that goes away all at once when we're uh, sedating them and paralyzing them. They also, because they're doing poorly, have acidosis. And, and with bad acidosis and sometimes hypoxemia, you're just more at risk for having a cardiovascular compromise when you're getting intubated. So another issue that can make intubating these patients uh, really scary and tough is that their main issue is not having enough time to breathe out. And often when they're getting intubated, they get bagged. And even if it's supposed to be a rapid sequence and they're not supposed to have active bagging, it usually happens. And people's heart rates are up when they're intubating. They're usually squeezing that bag way too fast. And for these asthmatics, that just releases this huge hyperinflation and all the negative effects of that really come to light right as they're getting intubated. And then finally, they already have this really reactive bronchospastic airway that also can have laryngospasm just from the increased tone. And then you're jamming a tube down there, which I think can trigger that to get a lot worse. So for all these reasons, intubating these patients can be a, a scary proposition. So given all these risks, do you guys have any uh, intubation techniques or things that you try to do to make it a little safer? Monty, anything that you have in mind? Yeah, first, I think in, you know, most intubations, um, one of the most important things is that everyone is going to be prepared for um, whatever can happen. And that includes, you know, the possible decompensation. Uh, so you really need a, you really need your team there and potential resources that are available. You know, and as much as we love talking about pulmonary and critical care um, pulm peeps, you know, most patients up to this point are being managed by our amazing ED colleagues. You know, and they're often the most experienced um, with airways and seeing patients um, before they either come up to, to one of our ICUs. So really in this situation, careful coordination is going to be, be the best and finding out what happened. Was there any, um, you know, was there any decompensation in the ED or anything that we should be looking out for? And ultimately, these patients should have rapid sequence intubation, as you mentioned earlier, for, since they can decompensate so quickly. And oftentimes, pre-oxygenation, um, while that's ideal, it often can't be achieved. And there is some data that ketamine and propofol can cause bronchodilation. So generally, these two agents are the preferred ones. And there are some small trials um, with ketamine indicating possible benefit even as a treatment alone for asthma. Uh, I haven't necessarily seen that done clinically, though. Um, but there is some literature out there. And, you know, usually after the ketamine and propofol, a paralytic agent's going to be used. And then the fastest possible intubation is ideal. Uh, like you said, for if the oxygen level can drop pretty quickly. Sandy, what about you? Anything else that you can think of? Well, there's also reports of using inhaled anesthetics after the patients um, are intubated, but I've never actually seen this happen. And I think it happens pretty rarely these days. I don't know if either of you have seen it. Yeah, no, I haven't. I feel like it's one of these things that gets mentioned and, you know, there's usually some old school attending who brings it up, but I just like, I, how hard would it be to get some uh, anesthesia machine into one of our ICU rooms? I feel like it would never happen these days, but I guess a good uh, backup in case you needed it. <laughs> Uh, so all, all these things are gold and, and, you know, pretty much outlines exactly what happened to this patient. So decision was made to intubate with rapid sequence intubation. They were actually sedated with ketamine and then got succinylcholine for paralytic. He was hypoxemic to the low eighties during the intubation. Like we talked about high risk of this and then hypotensive, same thing, high risk requiring pressors. His O2 saturation did recover after the intubation after a few minutes. 
So now we get to the thing that I think is so interesting, but also so scary when you're a first year poem fellow and you have your first one of these, and that's mechanical ventilation and asthma. So like Monty said, we love asthma. We love taking care of asthma exacerbations, but usually our ED colleagues who are so good at this handle all of the, this part up until this point. And the real top ICU consults, if one of these patients ever lands outside the MICU or even in the MICU calling the fellows, how do we mechanically ventilate these patients? It's a pretty complex topic, so I think we should take it piece by piece. So Sandy, what are the challenges that face us when we're trying to start mechanical ventilation in an asthma patient? Totally. So patients with severe asthma have high airway resistance. And that leads to prolonged expiration. And if they don't have adequate time to fully exhale, they end up developing dynamic hyperinflation. Um, so I think one of the key things um, that you have to look for on the ventilator in patients who have severe asthma is autopeep. Um, and knowing how to assess for autopeep on the ventilator is really key. And so, um, you know, you really want to become friendly with your respiratory therapist um, and get get good at your ventilator management so you know what you're looking for. Um, but first, you should be measuring um, an end expiratory hold. Second, you can do things like assess for ineffective triggering on your waveforms. So when a patient is auto-peep, they may not be able to effectively trigger the ventilator. And then finally, it's important to look at the flow waveform closely and see if there's persistence of expiratory flow at the end of the breath, which would suggest auto-peep. So the flow waveform should return to baseline. Additionally, if the area under the inspiratory flow time curve and the expiratory flow time curve um, is not equal, that should be making you also think, you know, could auto-peep be developing? So in addition to auto-peep, you often have difficulty getting adequate CO2 clearance in these patients. Finally, there can be hemodynamic impacts of severe auto-peep and hyperinflation. So in addition to this, patients are often not synchronous with the ventilator because they have such a high respiratory drive. So you, you, know, you really set a low rate and you want them to breathe slowly, but their drive is so high that it, it's really challenging to manage them on the ventilator. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that end expiratory hold is key. You know, for everybody out there who hasn't done this, you you stop the breath at the end of expiration and the ventilator will tell you what your measurement is then. And you actually have to look at what PEEP you have set. But so if you have a PEEP set of eight and the end expiratory pressure is 12, you have an auto PEEP of four uh, and that can sort of increase a one to two relatively normal, even three sometimes, but anything more than that is pretty abnormal. And I think that this uh, hemodynamic impact, one of the coolest things I feel like I ever saw probably made me go into critical care is like an asthmatic's on there, they're over-breathing, they're auto-peeping, their pressure's dropping, and someone just comes and pops them off the vent. And then all of a sudden everything gets better because all that auto-peep and hyperinflation is released and they put them back on in better settings. And so if you have really worried about auto-peep, that, that's your uh, ultimate solution is disconnect the vent temporarily and hook it back up. So Christina, given all these issues, what are initial ventilator mode and settings do you usually think for for these patients? That's a great teaching point for about the the auto peep. I've definitely seen that. Um, you know, Sandy and I were co fellows together, and I think we we've done we've seen a couple of auto peeps that we've had to handle that way. But given all the issues with high airway pressures and hyperinflation, volume modes are really the best for patients with asthma, and most commonly assist control ventilation or ACVC. And it's really important to, you know, when you set the 
the initial vent settings on someone is, you know, not to set them and walk away. You want to be there, look at the waveforms and look for any potential auto peep or concern for a decompensation. But I like to start with low minute ventilation and achieving that by setting a respiratory rate around 10 and then doing low tidal volume, so six cc's per kilogram, usually with a high inspiratory flow rate and to increase IDE ratio. And in most settings, you know, patients are going to be deeply sedated and or paralyzed. I know that there's some variation in how um, this is treated in across institutions, but if there is someone, you know, who's able to have more spontaneous efforts, I know that sometimes SIMV, our synchronized intermittent mechanical ventilation, um, is used. And with that, though, I would just caution that you'd want to have a low pressure support so that large volumes are not delivered. And for if I know that you always, you nerd out about the vents and about PEEP. So I want to ask you, though, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about intrinsic PEEP um, for these patients? Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of these things that we think about is uh, sort of matching your intrinsic PEEP with extrinsic PEEP. So just like Sandy said, you know, auto PEEP is the main concern, right? These patients don't have enough time to exhale. And so they start their next breath before their first breath is completely finished exhaling. And this leads to that cycle of having increasing lung volumes and then ongoing hyperinflation that leads to all the negative effects we've talked about. So we do these low settings, like you said, a respiratory rate of 10, low tidal volumes. And I think you guys have probably seen this too. We even decrease those settings. I've seen some patients who are breathing just like two or three or four times a minute and still doing fine, still ventilating. It just takes them that long to get the air out of their lungs. That's for the, when we do have a patient who we can keep not deeply sedated or paralyzed and they're taking their own efforts to breathe then that intrinsic PEEP can make it really difficult for them to trigger the vent and to get to a negative pressure that's going to allow them to inhale. They have so much air trapping that they have to pull really hard with their respiratory muscles just to get inflow of air. And this, this is actually why they work so hard when they're just breathing on their own, when they're not intubated, is it's really a lot of effort to overcome that hyperinflation. So if a patient has an intrinsic PEEP, say, 12 and our PEEP is set at five, they still have to generate all that extra negative pressure just to even begin a breath. And so we can alleviate some of that effort by increasing the PEEP that we're giving them. So if they're breathing spontaneously and they have a high intrinsic PEEP, we usually try to set it to about 80% of what their level is, just so that if they want to take a breath, it's not like they have to use these huge efforts to do it. And they we prevent a little bit more of that a patient self-induced lung injury on the ventilator from them trying to take these enormous uh, efforts for inhalation. And I wouldn't be uh, doing what I'm doing if I didn't mention that for these really refractory patients, someone who's sedated, paralyzed on really low vent settings, but you're still having trouble, you can consider now venovenous ECMO. So VV ECMO takes blood out of a vein, it oxygenates it and takes the carbon dioxide out puts blood back in a vein, and then your native heart pumps it uh, through your lungs and then to your body. And for these patients, there'll never be a randomized trial. There's no data to support this in a randomized fashion. But if somebody has such bad asthma that even on the best ventilator settings, they're still hypercapnic and still acidotic, we can just clear that CO2 artificially for them. And I've seen it work really well for the most refractory patients. They go on ECMO, they often get extubated first and then decannulated from the circuit and do really well. So it's a, a, a tool in your back pocket. 
All right, so back to our case. His initial gas after intubation was really scary, like we were anticipating. It was 7.07, 72. His oxygenation was better at 112. He was placed on volume control, like you said, Monty. His rate was eight breaths per minute, and his tidal volumes were 60 Cs per kg, and an FiO2 of 100% and a PEEP of five. And that FiO2 was quickly weaned. He was deeply sedated and paralyzed, giving ongoing ventilator dyssynchrony. And with this, his gas improved significantly. He was given continuous nebulizers through the ventilator and steroids. And by the next morning, they could already tell that his airway resistance was improving since they have the ventilator and can measure it on that. His neuromuscular blockade was lifted and he was able to be extubated after 48 hours. This is really great news for this patient, Firth, and you tend to see a quick response and turnaround time for patients with an acute asthma exacerbation with the treatments we discuss. One thing I like to go over with the MICU team in a patient such as this is what parameters do you look at on the ventilator to see if the patient is improving? And there are a few things that I tend to look for. The first one is by promoting bronchodilation, auto peep should become absent or remain minimal as the patient's able to get more air out. Second, remember with increased airway resistance, and in this case from bronchospasm, you will see high peak pressures with normal plateau pressures on the vent. So with clinical improvement, you should start to see decreased peak pressures over time. And the third thing that I look for is your peak and plateau pressures tend to move closer together as the resistance decreases. So Sandy, I want to go back to you. After a scary intubation like this, a really uh, severe exacerbation, what are some important things that we have to do for this patient going forward? Yeah, so this was a life-threatening asthma exacerbation. So follow-up is really the key here. So this patient should be immediately started on um, high dose on a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid um, and lab inhaler, and may also need additional therapies, things like a LAMA, a leukotriene inhibitor, or even eventually biologic therapy. So review of triggers and inhaler technique will be really important. But the key thing here is arranging follow-up with pulmonary clinic and making sure this patient has a way to get to pulmonary clinic for continued follow-up to make sure this doesn't happen again. Cool. All right. Another great consult series. Thanks, Sandy. We really appreciate your help with this one. I want to make sure that everybody gets a few key points they can take away from this episode to give to our listeners. So mine personally is that in severe asthma, a normal blood gas, even if it's your first one, can actually be a pretty scary sign. Patients who are in respiratory distress and, and breathing really, really quickly should be hyperventilating. And so if they're not, then that's something of concern. Yes. Mine is, is that in patients with severe asthma, it's so important to monitor for auto peep um, on the ventilator and you should know the ways to assess for auto peep. So feel really comfortable doing that before you start managing these patients. Thanks, Sandy. And I actually have two. Um, the first one, though, I think Sandy brought up a really great point about, you know, following up with patients, you know, after they're extubated and kind of through the acute crisis is really what can you do to prevent this from happening again? Is that something that's super modifiable that can really change someone's life going forward and making sure that they have good follow-up? And the second one is, um, you know, Firf mentioning VV ECMO is a potential option for this. I know we may not typically think of severe asthma um, as an indication, or you may not be used to seeing that so much, but you know, it, um, severe asthma in refractory patients can be an indication for VV ECMO. And uh, for if I foresee an ECMO palm peeps in the future, yeah, not just one. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
I know. I think we, we need some ECMO with the peeps. Um, so, so stay tuned for that. And Sandy, again, really want to thank you for joining us today. It was great to have you on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Pump Peeps Tom Consults. Make sure to join us in two weeks for our next episode and check us out at www.palmpeeps.com and follow us at Twitter and on Instagram at Palm Peeps. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music was original music made by Eric Rogers. Eric Rogers.